Hi, this is uh, Elise Wakerman. I am the author of the novel A Tale of Two Citizens, and I am speaking with uh, David Kukoff, a screenwriter and TV writer and author of the novel Children of the Canyon. And it's great to be speaking with you this afternoon, David. Hello. Yeah, hi, Elise. Good speaking with you, too. So we are both novelists, and uh, mm-hmm. is this your first novel? Yeah. Um, it's my first published novel. I I attempted and even finished one back when I was in my early 20s, but um, as I go back and look on it, it was, it was not exactly Martin Amos doing the Rachel Papers at 23. I was, it was a very immature work, and you know the best thing I can say about it is I finished it, and it at least gave me the confidence to come back to the medium 20-some-odd years later and finish this one. So, so what made you, you were having, a, from what I understand, a fairly successful career writing uh, dialogue and other forms. What made you come back to wanting to write a novel? Well, I mean, prose was always my first love. I mean, I, I, mm. I think instinctively, I think in words, not so much in images and scenes. And I had mm. to, I feel like I had to learn screenwriting more through, it's almost like I had to learn it through the wrong hemisphere of the brain. I mean, I, I had to truly really study it and apply it to it, you know, and, and really break models down and, and you know, you really kind of, uh, really do a, a, what I felt was an incredibly um, uh, academic approach to what made the craft work. Um, whereas with prose, it's just much, it's far more instinctive. I, I've never, I never really took um, short story writing courses. I, I'm not a graduate of an MFA program. Um, I really didn't know what was working or wasn't working other than just sort of my gut telling me. So I really had always just wanted to go back to when I just felt naturally flowed for me a little more instinctively as opposed to a medium where, I mean, I think I've become a bit of a, a capable screenwriter, but I've also had 20-plus years of doing it. Um, and the other, and the other thing is that, and this is this is not news to anybody, but as a scriptwriter, at the end of the day, you're only really writing a blueprint. Um, you can write an amazing blueprint. You can write, you know, brilliant genius blueprints, and sometimes they're followed mm-hmm. perfectly. Um, it reflects well on all parties. But at the end of the day, you're just one of many voices bringing a vision to the screen. Whereas with prose, it's just you and your words and your ideas, um, especially the way, especially when you publish the independent publishers we have, where you're really given a lot of leeway to, to express your vision. So there's just something wonderful about somebody reading your work and knowing you entirely in it as opposed to millions of people watching a movie that your name is on but that you might not feel quite so much personal attachment to. Right. You know, that's interesting. It brings, I think we've both been writing instructors. You taught at uh, Northwestern and I taught at Cal yeah. State Northridge. And uh, oh. did you teach screenwriting or uh, creative writing? I taught film and television writing. Um, my, my MFA is in, is in screenwriting from UCLA. So uh-huh. I was, and, and you know, between that and my credits, Northwestern was a very, one thing I, what I love about the program is they were very, um, um, they, they, they were real, they were very real world oriented. They wanted people who had credits and who'd done a lot of work in the system to really work with the kids and teach them some of the practical applications of the craft as opposed to just more theoretical implications. So, well, it's interesting as you were talking because I was thinking that even though I did become a creative writing instructor and enjoyed it thoroughly and came up with, I thought, some very um, 
good um, prompts to get the students launched into uh, telling their stories. My, and before I started doing it, I was quite skeptical about the whole notion of teaching creative writing. And like you said, it, is, it does seem to be something more that would come from your gut, that would come from just having been a reader as a child and just being a lifelong right. reader, and, and that's where really being a good writer comes from. And that's what I tell my students. We're going to have a lot of fun in this room, and you're going to you know, write some good stuff. But, and I'll instruct you, you know, in terms of form and craft and pacing and that. But basically the way to improve yourself, the way to strengthen your writing is to read and to write. <laughs> you know, that's yes. what happens. And I think that whereas screenwriting and TV writing and even playwriting are much more teachable because they have more to do with crafting and there are just certain rules in play and certain, you know, more in terms of just formatting, you know, that I think you can, it just seems a little bit more, those skills seem to be a little bit more teachable than writing a, a story or writing a novel. I think, I think, that's, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, um, it's, it's, it's really, um, the, you know, I, I always, at the, end, at the end of the day, I really started with structure with, for, you know, when I was, when I was working, you know, whenever I was working with my students, um, I really felt that I wanted them to understand structures, um, very much, uh, first and foremost, um, the, the, obviously we would talk about character and ideas and theme and, and wonderful, but. I, I really would, I, you know, the way I learned to do it was I just broke screenplays apart and said, okay, well, what's working here? I started seeing patterns over and over again. And it wasn't going to yeah. be the case for something like the Apocalypse Now or something like The Godfather or Chinatown or the biggies that are sort of taught in schools, but it certainly could be the case for Back to the Future or The Short Thing or these kind of genre-based models that were really accessible and incredibly instructive to young, to a young screenwriter like me who I could, who I could just sort of see what... You know, I, I can kind of, kind of, you know, I can almost like, it's almost like you think about it as a video game. Um, you see the game itself, but if you're a coder, you you can strip that aside and look at the coding choices that were made behind the scenes that actually led to the video game. And that's how I approach the craft. I think you're right. I think it's a little harder to do with prose because it just follows fewer rules. Um, conversely, you sometimes do see people who can kind of come out of the gate without a ton of training and be fairly good. Um, I mean, not great necessarily, but I mean, can write prose beautifully, whereas with script writing, because it's, there, there, there's so much technical expertise involved, that's almost never the case. You don't get any Mozart. I always say, I'm always thought that you don't get any Mozart with script, script writing. I notice, I've never seen anybody just like decide, okay, I'm going to write a screenplay with no experience and knock one out, and it's actually pretty good. Um, my first five, as I always told my students, were so bad that no record of them exists on the planet. They're not. I mean, it's, they, it's almost like they biodegraded. <laughs> right. right. So, yeah. Yeah, that's So, true. yeah, it, it's, it's a very different thing. Yes. That's certainly true. Um, and also, David, I was wondering if you could move to a different location in the loft. You're speaking to me from a loft. Sure, I'm sorry. You're going is this, a, is this a little, little better? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, okay, good. I'll just stand here. But I did hear everything you said about code. Maybe that okay. was like the medium is the message or something. Um, gotcha. So when the, the so this is I have um, always, or at least since it existed famously, 
the whole romance of the children of, uh, well, of Laurel Canyon, Ladies of the Canyon, I guess it starts there with that um, fantastic yeah. album, and then finding out that the, when you moved, I moved from uh, New York to Los Angeles, and with a little stop in San Francisco in between, just to kind of make the transition complete. Um, and the whole mystique around that canyon and the incredible talent that resided there and played and smoked and, you know, composed. and It's really very like a romantic time. And I actually read um, Girls Like Us. Are you familiar with that book? Mm, yeah, sure. Still a book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, which, which is a great companion piece your book. I mean, anybody yeah. teaching the 70s should just do those two books, you know, arm in arm, because they, they go together so well. And um, so I guess <laughs> they, would, yes. one, one, we, they would, of course. Um, so did you ask, were you a child of the canyon? You know, I actually wasn't. Um, and that's where the fiction part comes in, because, you know, like uh-huh. you, I was I was very taken with the romance of, of of what that area was. I remember when I was interviewing Michael Walker, who wrote the book Laurel Canyon, about you know just this great you know one stop shop for all the great mythology and folklore of Laurel Canyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I interviewed him, I, I asked I, I asked him this, this very simple question: Why do you think that time and that place happened so magically and and you know and so it and so eternally? Um, he said, you know, he said, obviously there was, you know, a time component to it. And it was, you know, the 60s and, you know, there were all these folkies who were kind of falling out of the folk world who were moving out west. And said, but Laurel Canyon itself is ideally situated. On one hand, you have this incredibly bucolic, very rustic, very wild kind of place that's a wonderfully, the minute you see it, it just screams, come create me, you know, come we'll take a walk in my, in my, in, up, up by little trails and, and, you know, and, and sit under a tree and just, you know, with your guitar and think your thoughts. Um, there's certainly that, but it's also all of maybe five minutes up the hill from the Sunset Strip. Where right. not only the not only are you know is there a lot of the music business down there, but there's also all the, all these wonderful clubs that these guys are playing at. So you have this right. extraordinary combination of of you know sort of the, the ideal creative environment with the right next to running up adjacent with the with, with the perfect business environment, which isn't the case. It wasn't going to be the case in New York, and it it hasn't really been the case almost anywhere else. I can you know thinking you know I mean, in history, you think of other music scenes that pop. Right and left, and for sure, you know, Seattle in the '90s was interesting, and there's there was an Austin scene, a San Diego scene. You always hear about Williamsburg, and, but you know, something about Laurel Canyon, you know, even 50 years later, um, is uh, you know allowing the Grammy Museum to have a six-month retrospective of it, like they did this past year, mm-hmm. um, to have to have Vanity Fair do an oral history, like they did in March. It's just to you know to, to inspire authors like me to write first novels that take place there. Um, you know, my you know, my experience was I grew up in Los Angeles and I had a lot of friends whose parents uh, were involved in the counterculture and who were in the film and music and music businesses. So I, when I would read about them later, I would personally say, oh, I was kind of there. I remember going to their houses and seeing these strange people and hearing these, these kind of odd conversations. But um, no, it wasn't like I just did a thinly veiled memoir and said, hi, it's a novel. You know, it, it really is fiction. It's something I... You know, a right. combination of personal experiences, personal perspective, but there's also 
there's also true Kenyan mythology in my book. There's actual, you know, literary history in there of sorts that I just extrapolated right. and, and right. appropriated for, for, my, for my narrative's needs. So. Well, it was a place and a time uh, and a, a circumstance that drew you to it, right? And so you had to do some quite a bit of research, probably. And, uh, you know, of course, even a canyon is such a perfect location for for something that reverberates with music, you know. When you were talking, it reminded yeah. me of the subways in New York where I grew up in the city, and it was... Uh, that was our, that's where the sounds would echo, you know, and we'd have all those great harmonies and the guys singing, and it was always guys, I'm sorry to say, or at least for the most part, um, doing their harmonies in the um, subway and then maybe up on the street corner, but the way the sound bounced off those tiled walls is probably, you know, reminds you of how conducive making music was yeah. in this canyon. And uh, and also when you're talking about the research that goes into making a novel, I uh, a tale of two citizens is based on papers that I found that belonged to my father. I never knew him because wow. he died when I was three years old, and mm. I had written a, a, a nonfiction book about the effects of father absence on girls. Um, and then, but I, when I wrote that book, I had not yet come upon these papers. And when I discovered them, uh, there were photographs of a woman and a child, and there was a congressional deportation hearing with my father's name on it. So that's when I realized he was an illegal, uh, illegal. Wow. Uh, I hate to use the word alien, uh, illegal immigrant, and and they tried to deport him. So I was like, wow, I, mm. I have tripped on something here. But I, you know, some people wow. have asked me, why didn't you just write his story? Why didn't you do some research and look into Hyman Wakerman's life? And somehow or other, um, I guess because I am, first and foremost, a lover of fiction, and that was my um, creative goal, and also because I didn't want to impinge on his actual life. I wanted his life to kind of inspire me to dream, uh, which he had always done. And um, so I did research into the times. He came here in 1929, So, and his struggle for citizenship took place during the 1930s. And I've always been very attracted to that time, you know, the culture and all the stuff going on, the dust storms and the depression and um, the labor unions and George Gershwin, you know, it was just a very rich time. And, of course, the increasingly audible sound of Nazi Gustav in the background. Uh, he was Jewish, and he came from Poland, and circumstances made it so that he had to lie on his visa. And uh, wow. an immigration official become, became aware of it. Well, now I'm, now I'm slowly transitioning, although that part is true. The part that's true is the, the bare bones of the story, which are that just as he was about to embark on his journey to America, he was all of 20 years old, he had to be, uh, in quote, according to the quota system that was in place at that time, he had to be uh, unmarried and under 21. And when he filled out his wow. visa, he was unmarried and under 21. And literally, as he was about to embark, his girlfriend told him she was pregnant. And so he married her. Wow. 
and wow. stayed with her for a while and then continued on his trip with the promise and the full intention of sending for her and the child. But his visa still said unmarried and he was married. And so just by getting married, the minute he stepped foot in America, he was a, an outlaw. <laughs> you know, he had to keep wow. a very low profile. Wow. And, and, uh, and immigration, this, the immigration official that I, um, depict in the book and who is the other citizen of the title is, um, you know, I care for him. He is a human being. He does have good intentions as far as his perspective is concerned, but um, he wants to keep America free of these freeloaders, not that uh, this character is a freeloader. He works very, very hard, but people who have entered illegally, there is no place in the United States for these people. And it's so similar to what's going on, and so uh, it, it's kind of amazing to come upon a, a fragment of family history and be attracted to it on a creative level and then realize, oh my goodness, this is also current events, you know, so the, kind of what? the book is divided and it's related to current events, you know. Oh, current events, yeah, yeah. Events, yes, those those current events. You know, like so. Each of the sections of the book is subtitled. Like one chapter is called "Out of the Shadows." One is called "A Path to Citizenship." Climate change. So, um, just to kind of drive home the fact that even though we can read about something that happened in the 1930s, it's really uh, so many of those attitudes are holding over today. And um, and to really make the book sing, if you will, I had to really get down and serious about knowing the 1930s, you know. So even the most yeah. casual, what music they're listening to, uh, do they use paper towels? Do they have whipped cream that comes out of a air pressurizer? You know, like all these little details, you'll type them in, and then you have to make sure that um, they had this thing and they, in fact were wearing this thing, and how high were the heels. And so I think that what many people might not realize is that writing a work of fiction, especially, of course, which we both did, historical fiction, takes a lot of research. Yeah, it really does. And it it takes a lot of research. I mean, you know, look, as you pointed out, I mean, I read anything and everything I could get my hands on about Laurel Canyon um, and about mm-hmm. not just the music scene, but about just even there's this crazy conspiracy theorist, um, a series of conspiracy theories about Laurel Canyon being sort of a secret military plot to undermine the counterculture because so many people who were in the music world had mm-hmm. the military, had parents who were in the military. Um, or they themselves had some vague military background there. There's all these, there's a lot of just interesting peripheral stuff written about the canyon. It's very much the spirit of what the, of the anything goes ethos that ran the place when it was in its heyday. Um, but beyond just, it's certainly for me, um, you know, even though I wasn't a child of the canyon per se, um, I, I would remember just certain moods I would have and just certain perspectives being little and just looking around and sensing something. And so, and for me, the, the, the biggest test was when the people who grew up here in that era would read the book. And I said, okay, if it passes the smell test with the locals, I feel like I have something. And happily, most of them who read it 
felt that it really did kind of transport them back to that time and place, even again if they didn't have first-hand experience with Orkane, and they do remember what, what it was like when Los Angeles was still a little bit uncharted, when it was still a little bit of, of the Wild West, when it, you know, it had pockets that felt a little bit frontier, where, as I always say, you never know if you'd stumble across a coyote or a Manson family, you know, outcast wandering yeah. around. Um, it, it was a, just, it just, it just felt, you know, it was, it, you know, it's a city that we still, as children, explored without supervision and felt as though we could just kind of roam around and, and have our, and make our own fun in, which is very, very, very much not the case for children today. Um, but, I, you know, as, as, just like you, I wanted to explore why this isn't just sort of a nice little snapshot and what about it made my book relevant. I mean, just as you have obviously some parallels to today's immigration crises, and, 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 and I'm sure plenty can be gleaned from the experience of yesterday's immigrants to today's, um, my book was really an attempt to think about how we got to where the country is today, for better or for worse. You know, what part did the counterculture play in that? And I, in my, as I saw it, um, the Laurel Canyon counterculture and the California counterculture in a bigger sense played a very big part. Because, uh, you know, just like Californians elected Reagan to the governorship in the wake of the, of the watch riots and, the, and a lot of the turmoil that's going on in the cities, I think the country as a whole put Reagan in the White House as a response to just wanting to have a grown-up in charge. You know, the 70s were kind of the last gasp where they really said we don't, this is, you know, a lot of these policies for us at least don't seem to be working. And if you think about how a lot of, you know, America got to where it got to today, it, a lot of it starts with Reagan. Um, so I did see the 70s and, and the counterculture in particular, of which I wrote, as this interesting bridge from the we're all in it together ethos of the 60s to I'm getting mine of the 80s. And how, how we got up there was that decade bridge of the 1970s. And in particular, the Laurel Canyon seemed to be very much at, for, at, at, at this ground zero apex of where that all began. Well, that was also the me decade. You know, and that's what was so astonishing. And yeah, the, yeah. The collective... Well, they, call, they called it the new, me decade, but uh, I felt like the me decade actually came a decade after that, if you really, if you really think about it. I mean, the 80s were much more me decade than the 70s, if you ask me. And it maybe, it maybe started the 70s, but boy. You know, yeah, well, I think yeah. it's kind of... It doesn't start exactly with the zeros, you know, like the 60s. Though, yeah, really yeah, of course. The 60s start with uh, the assassination of Kennedy. I think that kicked off I mean, the whole world would have been different, and um, that was just such a blow, such a blow to our optimism and yeah. our youthfulness and, and uh, you know, the whole Vietnam War. And um, Yeah, so I remember I had to um, write a, an essay once, like, what irritates you the most about your generation? And it was the me decade, you know, and how did this happen, and how does it all become about... Right. And it still, it still lingers. The whole self-improvement thing. I mean, people are just watching their diets so carefully. And, you know, I mean, I know that for many of us, because we're getting older, <laughs> so we're just being prudent. But um, there's just a lot of focus on, you know, hand sanitizers and talk about being able to get around freely and not worry so much, uh, uh, you know, when you're young. Um, things have really taken the other direction. And when, when you were speaking, it just, unfortunately, it seems like so much of culture unfolds as a reaction to what just was. 
you know, and I think in the case yeah. of the what we'll call the 60s, we did some really good stuff. We liberated a lot of attitudes, and I think it's all for the better, from race to sex to, to gender to, you know, just all kinds of um, straitjackets that were seen as normal and the norm and, you know, yeah. it was good to conform and that whole scene. Um, so I think it's ultimately it's good. But, you know, look at it. Today, they're still fighting uh, birth control, really. They still want to defund Planned Parenthood, and you just can't believe it. I remember at his first um, inauguration speech in 2008, Obama said, you know, surely we will rid ourselves of the stale concerns of the past. And you believed him for about 10 minutes, and then here they are wanting to get rid of Roe v. Wade and you know, they're still outraged and um, ruffle, all ruffled up by uh, progress. So, um, you know, we both in our own ways, and I think historical fiction is a wonderful way to do it, to kind of look at where you are today, um, to see where you've come from. Um, when you were doing your research, did you find that most of the children of the canyon had a very tough time because their parents were so kind of um, freewheeling? Yeah, I mean, that was actually what really kind of the impetus for writing the book was I remember um, I had gone to this very progressive preschool and, and kindergarten, and I remember I left after well, a little bit in the first grade because I was kind of asked to leave because um, I wanted to check a book out of the library. And according to the, the, the doctrine of this, school, they didn't push reading on the kid till third grade. That wasn't their thing. They just didn't want us to have to read and be like, you know, it was a very, I mean, so I was obviously bored and wanted something much more structured, but mm. I would bump into some of these kids I'd gone to, pre, you know, to, to the preschool from time to time. And I remember a few of them, not all, obviously, because some had, you know, it, became, you know, it wasn't like everybody there was just some lost soul, but I would see the, you know, a, a, a few, what I felt, you know, kind of casualties of the era. And I just sensed that this was a period where a lot of the prevailing attitudes, um, while, as you point out, had, lived, had created a lot of liberation and lasting liberation and good stuff, there were some that had come at the great, great expense to the family, to, you know, to the family unit, where I think quite, as we did more and more research on it, and, 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 and a, you know, a lot of it sort of pointed to a selfishness or a you know a self-justifying attitude that a lot of parents have with hey as you know as long as we're cool the kids will be cool and that's what's the most important thing and you know and hey let's not you know let's not push towards structuring the kids and let them find themselves and be themselves and hey they'll cost by our first names because I don't want to lay this whole parenting trip on them and you know, there was right. there was some of that for sure that I you know I can't imagine anybody looking back on it saying yeah that was the right way to to go you know I think kids need structure they need boundaries. They need role models. They need discipline. They need, you know, they, they need families that feel like families. And I think that on some level, look, I mean, we've changed a lot of what constitutes a family, you know, nowadays, and that's fine and wonderful. Um, but I, I don't. I, I think there's change to accept the things that you know that expand, that expand the definition of it, and there's change that I think can be quite detrimental. And I think the latter was. I think it was was prevalent uh, throughout a fair amount of the counterculture. So, yeah, I think it, um, 
sometimes you had a lot of adults who were busy tending to the world, but not necessarily their own homes. And maybe, I think with my generation, sometimes the reverse tend to be true. Like, everyone said, okay, I'm just going to focus on my kids, my family, and make sure they're all good, but I'm not sure how much activism um, they've, they, they've, you know, they, they, they've taken upon themselves. I mean, it's really just about, you know, like hovering over their kids and making sure their precious little kids are, you know. So, so, so if anything, maybe the opposite extreme is a little true for my generation, if I had to generalize, you know. But, but, but I think some of that just was probably a response to, again, what, the, what they saw as being just, uh, you know, a, a, somewhat of a disregard for the family, the, the family unit back when they were growing up. Right. And the children were kind of there as an extension of their yeah. kind of going life, and they were, you know, just like a, a long flowing skirt. You have an adorable little child with a probably with a weird name, you know, like right. uh, right. trout or something. And um, yeah. yeah, and it was all part of their creative output, as opposed to yeah. a little person that you have to raise and think about, and you know, maybe curtail some of your own. Uh, do what you want when you want lifestyle. Um, so I would not be surprised to learn that um, you know in the aggregate, certainly not. I don't want to generalize too much, but um, that having hippie parents who are dedicated to self-expression and getting high and um, just uh, valuing freedom above all, not, recogni- not recognizing that freedom is the recognition of necessity, if I may quote Hegel, um, you know, that, that probably the kids suffered to some extent. And, you know, there are movies about that, too. There was Running on Empty. Um, mm-hmm. It's about uh, years ago. But it was all, I thought it was a pretty good treatment of how sure. the, yeah, the... there was. Rebellious, right? Rebellious acts of the parents don't really help the kids very much. And, of course, it's... Right, there was the ice storm, which is also quite wonderful. Yes, yes. So just as the the society or a certain portion of it rails against immigrants, um, which is so interesting because immigrants, by and large, and again, I don't want to generalize, like, ignorantly, but just by and large, I would say that people from the old country, whether it's Poland, Russia, Mexico, Nicaragua, um, or wherever, probably have, when they're coming here, have such a dedication to the family. You know, um, there are all the men that come and and women who come and one of their primary purposes is to send money back home so that their kids are... And, and spouses are living more comfortably, more reasonably, and of course with the ultimate goal of getting them over here. And, you know, uh, for, in the case of the character in my book, he is working very, very hard to get his family here, and only to realize that once he submits his application for their visas, because he finds out that if he's a citizen, his son is a citizen. So he's very excited by that. But he also realizes that by sending in his application, there go the authorities, including Will Brown, the uh, immigration official who's kind of been following this case, they're going to see that his visa says that he's not married. So how can you be sending for a wife and child that you supposedly didn't have? And that's kind of how the uh, the, the drama, you know, is uh, for it's coming to a, a head is that he has to deal with that. And, you know, may, he may or may not be apprehended. I don't want to 
give that away, but it certainly puts him in a bind. So um, doing all the paperwork in this case and being conscientious is not, um, not that helpful to him. And also another kind of surprising thing that happens is that the wife of Will Brown, uh, she's the major female character in the book, um, and she comes to the aid of the immigrant um, and kind of sees the, that what her husband does for a living maybe is questionable. <laughs> and, um, you know, so there's a bit of a romantic triangle in it. And that's one of the other things I wanted to say about writing is that very often, at least I find this, and I'm wondering if you do too, the book doesn't, the story doesn't exactly go in the direction that I had initially planned. You know, I, it kind of, the characters, Dr. O said this last week, well, he didn't, he died last week, but he was quoted in one of the many obituaries as saying that his characters write his books. And I, I wouldn't go that far, but I do feel that I want to be open to my characters showing me that this is a better way than what you had in mind. Does that happen with you? Um... I mean, I, I, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, I find that, and, and like, like all this, it's, it's so hard. Character is the most elusive thing because, you know, I feel like we can control story in a certain way. We can say, okay, here's my beginning, middle, and end. Okay, and here's, here are the ideas I want to espouse. And then somehow we breathe life into these creatures, and it's just like children. Um, we have ideas mm-hmm. for them or thoughts for them and they have their own ideas. And I have found that characters acting on page, on, on page differently um, than I had envisioned them acting in my mind. Um, I, I, I found them, I found them surprising me at every turn uh, where they really made choices for themselves. Um, there were a couple of sections okay. in my book where I, I still look at now. I say, I, I really felt as though I was channeling real people because yeah. The choices were so inconsistent, seemingly, and yet they made perfect sense, I knew, in my mind to these characters. And mm-hmm. I don't know how else to describe that other than the fact that, again, there's this, there, there's, there's this, you know, in, intangible and elusive three-dimension, three-dimensional aspect that your character, that, that, that happens whenever you write the name of somebody and bring them to life on the page. Um, it's why... It's, it's, it's why, yeah, it's, it's why that myth has been so strong. It's why Pinocchio is, is so strong. It's why, yeah, it, it applies to so many different things more than just, it, it really applies to the creative process. Uh, you know, once we put them on the page, they're not entirely our own anymore. They have their own ideas. And that's what happened throughout, throughout the course of my book. I just found myself being constantly surprised by the journeys that my characters decided to go on. And, they would sometimes have, when I would revisit them at later chapters in the book, because every chapter of my book is a different year in the 1970s. So we would meet somebody in 1973, and I wouldn't say bring them back till like, I don't know, 1980. Um, and by the time I brought them back, they were in a whole, their, their off, off stage or off screen or off page journey had been so different from the way I'd initially envisioned it or the way, I'd, or, or what, what, what would have been expected. But by the time I brought them back, it somehow didn't surprise me that when they announced themselves, when they when they reentered um, and, and and announced their objectives, that that they were where they were at at that point in their story. So I hope that answers yeah. your question. I'm not sure if it oh, does. Oh, totally. But. Oh, totally. Yes. It's it's um. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it kind of 
makes up for the very real isolation of the act of writing is that, in fact, you're not alone because you're with all these people, you know. I mean, I'd like to call them characters rather than people, but, you know, they have voices, they have a will, and they have a direction. And in one specific case, it always comes to mind when I'm talking about this, um, the character of Barbara, who is Will's wife, the, the Midwestern um, lawyer, um, she was going to leave a scene where she meets Harry. Harry is the immigrant. And we were going to stay with Harry. And I found myself following Barbara. Like, that's where the attention was going. And it's like she was saying, Elise, forget about that. Come with me because this is going to be good. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. And so I, I said to my students, if you start hearing voices, that's good. You know, I, I truly feel, and this might be where my playwriting instruction or training uh, comes in comes to me, uh, that really when the characters are speaking, they are speaking. It's almost like I'm just typing, right. you know. And I think right. that uh, a lot of people say that dialogue is the hardest part of writing, and everybody has their own thing that's their hardest part. But um, for me, thankfully, it isn't. In fact, it's delightful because I'm always happy when a dialogue section is coming along because I know they'll just start talking and... Um, right. I'm kind of, you know, right. it's like well, listening in, right? Yeah, yeah. well, it's like certainly it's one of the joys of screenwriting is you can allow, you can really allow the dialogue to, yeah, you just have, have them start talking and sometimes you're all of a sudden that undertow kicks in and you're out to sea in the, in the best way. They're, they're like, my God, this is writing itself because these characters are talking to each other and I'm not, I feel like I'm just sort of channeling and overhearing what they're saying, so yeah. Exactly, like you're being nosy. You're just listening yeah. in. Yeah. So anyway, I think that, um, you know, I think that our books the, on face value from the canyon to the Polish farm to Washington, D.C., don't have that many things in common, but they really do. In a, and one thing they have in common, I realized as I was jotting down notes preparing for our conversation, my uh, abbreviation for my book is a T O T C, a tale of two cities. Mm. Yours is C O C O T C. C O T C. Yeah. There you go. It was meant to be. So giving giving the titles and not just the letters. I've been very happily sharing ideas about writing and books and times and the influence of those times on our lives with David Kukoff, the author of Children of the Canyon. And I hope that people will also uh, find uh, find it to their interest to look for the book, A Tale of Two Citizens uh, by Elise Wakeman. Thanks so much, David. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much.